Welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of Jesus in Montreal, a podcast of the Presbyterian College. Through this podcast, we are exploring the theme of Christian identity in Montreal. We are sharing stories of faith and work and music and ministry in this unique context, asking, where is Jesus alive and bringing hope and joy and transformation in the city? Our host is Roland DeVries, principal of the college, and our guest for this episode is Dr. Roger Ghosh. Dr. Ghosh is a palliative care physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Montreal, where he has worked now for 12 years. Dr. Ghosh is an active member of a local church community here in Montreal, and has also completed a Master's in Theological Studies at Tyndale Seminary in Toronto. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Ghosh as we explore with him what it means to be a palliative care doctor and what he has learned about the presence of Jesus in his work and in the lives of others, including those who are in the last stages of their life. Welcome to this episode of Jesus in Montreal. Well, good morning, uh, Roger. Uh, good to see you uh, again. I'm going to make a confession off the top as we uh, as we begin uh, this podcast episode, and that is that we did this uh, a couple of days ago, and I made a novice mistake of uh, not pressing record. <laughs> so, so here we are, and we have both heard the voice of Zoom say. Uh, recording in progress. So we're, uh, we're good to go. And just thank you for coming back and for and having this conversation. Uh, it's uh, such a good conversation every time um, uh, exploring these questions together. So uh, I thought we could start you've been introduced uh, in the intro to this episode. And uh, I just wonder if you could begin by saying a little bit about what a palliative care doctor does. I think that's probably a bit of a mystery to a lot of people. What what are some of the tasks? What are some of the things that uh, that fill your day as someone who's working in palliative care in this way? Yeah, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast today. Um, yeah, so I've been working in palliative care for almost 12 years uh, in Toronto and Montreal. Um, is, uh, you know, seeing people on the palliative care unit where patients uh, who have uh, illnesses that are incurable uh, and that are progressing despite uh, medicine's best efforts and who may uh, be too weak to be cared for at home or may have complex symptoms that are challenging to manage at home. But, you know, they don't need to be in a uh, acute care hospital uh, at that time. Uh, in fact, they're better off with uh, specialists in palliative care like myself and the specialist nurses that I, we work with and the social worker. And we have quite a team um, of care there. Uh, in fact, part of the WHO definition of palliative care is that it's an interdisciplinary um, uh, practice. So. Um, not just the social worker, but spiritual care, uh, music therapy, art therapy, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, um, recreation therapy. So that's even just a snippet of what can be available out there. Uh, mm. So it's really a team approach. Um, and the goal is, um, I, I like to sort of think of it as protecting people's dignity. Uh, these illnesses, uh, when they're incurable, 
really affect a person's dignity in many ways uh, by affecting their autonomy, by affecting their comfort, uh, causing pain or breathlessness. Um, and so the team approach and the medical specialty is about trying to relieve and palliate palliative care, uh, the uh, effects of the illness. Uh, I also do home care. So we have a home care nurse and, and we will go into people's home and care for them there. And uh, many people are able to stay home uh, until they die. That's uh, also a very gratifying part of the work to be able to uh, support that, that desire uh, for people. Of course, it's not always possible. Uh, that's why you need both options, especially during a pandemic. You know, uh, people have tended to have a preference to try to stay home and avoid the uh, COVID exposure of a hospital. So that's another part of my work that I really enjoy, uh, uh, going into people's homes and, and seeing their lives and the richness surrounding the story they tell me, you know, to see the, the context within which that story exists is, is a really cool uh, uh, way of doing medicine. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I'm curious, um, often, at least in my tradition, we think about uh, vocation and call. Uh, often we use that language more specifically for pastors or religious leaders. So we think of a, a minister as being called um, and we, we don't do a great job of thinking about what it means that all of us are called right in our everyday vocations are called to serve in particular ways that God is uh, calling us. Um, and so I wonder, do you think about it in that sense, your own work in palliative care? Uh, is it a call for you or how would you describe it in, in terms of a sense of call from God? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. So, um, my story sort of goes all the way back to elementary school when my grandmother was uh, suffering of uh, ovarian cancer and lived with us at home. Um, and I would often be um, uh, the only one home when the CLSC nurse came to visit her uh, in our home. And so I would open the door and direct her to uh, where my grandmother was um, and would sort of observe from afar. Um, and I recall when my grandmother did have to be admitted to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital back then, um, the comforts uh, that the palliative care doctor was able to provide to my family. Uh, you know, there weren't easy answers to any of the questions, but the comfort I, I could see was being provided. Uh, so certainly all the way back then, there was a bit of that. And when I started medical school, uh, it was around the same time that I was uh, re-exploring Christianity, growing up Catholic, but uh, mostly identifying as an atheist uh, through uh, Sejab and then rediscovering uh, faith through some uh, classmates who were Christians. My uh, mentor, the first year, uh, we were all paired up uh, with uh, six students with a mentor, and my mentor was a palliative care doctor. So my first patient encounters uh, where we're practicing, you know, getting a history uh, from the patients were with people on the palliative care unit at the Montreal General Hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I quickly had to learn that, um, you know, I, I may have a task that I've been given uh, and I'm being evaluated on. Uh, but if the patient starts crying um, because of the uh, bigger uh, existential things they're going through, 
that then that becomes the priority of the interview. And so uh, I had to learn that pretty quickly. Then when I was doing my residency in family medicine in Ottawa, I had uh, the chance to work at the Maycourt Hospice, uh, which uh, really impacted me. Uh, now as a training doctor, a Finnish medical school, uh, with a lot more knowledge and independence and being able to do that work and just seeing the experience of actually doing the work and how uh, much I enjoyed um, being able to provide that kind of care to people. Uh, so when I was uh, finishing residency and considering what to do next, uh, I had been considering pediatrics, I had been considering general family medicine and, and palliative care and even addictions medicine. Mm. And um, I finally had to just ask uh, God, uh, you know, where have you placed a heart uh, in me, uh, you know, what mm. population, uh, have you placed the heart in me that will sustain a long, uh, career and <clears throat> over days and weeks that it became pretty clear that, uh, it was for people with terminal illnesses who were dying, um, and their families and being able to be in those, those moments was, was, uh, uh, using using your your uh, sort of question, uh, my mm. calling, like a, a calling yeah. or a, a real vocation that that was uh, placed in me. Right. Uh, I like the way that that weaves all these things together. Um, the typical narrative is sometimes you know, Paul on the road to Damascus, and it's this dramatic voice that comes from somewhere um, and says, "Now you're going to do this," and that happens. <laughs> of course, that happens. But but. Uh, but often it happens through the stories of our lives that we discover who we are, what we're called to do, what we have an interest in, what God has gifted us for, and 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 prayerfully seeking that. So, yeah, I, I love the way you you weave all of that together. As you think about um, the work you do and you've been doing for twelve years now, um, I don't know what language you would use to describe it, but. Um, you've thought of maybe about what a good death is. Um, and I was trying to think about what I mean when I asked that question. Um, <laughs> and uh, another way I thought of putting it is um, what is happening in the life of someone who is living well toward death? Um, maybe that's a better way than to talk about a good death, but what does it mean to live well toward death? And what, how would you describe that process? Yeah, it, it's um it's a concept that we talk about a lot in palliative care that uh, when we have residents and medical students, we sort of discuss what that means. And mm. some of the themes that, that I would uh, think about uh, includes an ability to sort of uh, zoom out and look at their life um, with gratitude uh, or a sense of peacefulness. Certainly, uh, everyone's made mistakes, but if that person, when, when that person is able to feel accepted for the life they've lived and for the life they're living, mm. um, I think that goes a long way to the uh, examples that I have witnessed of, you know, dying well. And it is a very personal thing. Uh, obviously, when someone is at the end of life, there's uh, family surrounding and friends and 
um, what may be a good death for the patient may may be seen as not a good death for mm. the entourage, and so uh, that adds to the complexity. Uh, you know, you may be seeing a patient who's very at peace, but uh, someone close to them is not at peace, and mm. and that colors how we interpret whether it's good or not. Um, and so, you know, probably best to focus in on the person. Um, and think of, you know, that, that idea of self-acceptance. I think of Romans 8.1, uh, a passage that, that has been really helpful to me to understand God's heart, which says, uh, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm. Um, and I think that sense for a Christian especially, but I think that, you know, that's a, a universal sort of, uh, universally helpful uh, experiences to mm. feel uh, that you're not condemned and that you're actually loved and, and okay and acceptable. And I think it, what it allows is uh, interaction with family that is uh, about living because you're still alive. Um, it's about um, maybe reconciliation, maybe forgiveness, but in a way that that you know is uh, freely freely given and and not requiring a specific response from others. Um, so I think those are those are some some uh, attributes that I, I would point to that that uh, underlie uh, what it looks like when someone is uh, is well in the face of a terminal illness. Right. Um, yeah, I find it interesting the way you sort of, you know, we're talking maybe about two different people who are dying, someone who may be a Christian explicitly and someone who may not be, um, may express faith intentionally or not. Um, and yet a lot of, uh, there will be parallels between their experience. Uh, there's something universal about how we've been created by God um, and that, living well is something that we, we can experience whether we're a person of faith or not. And obviously faith will, will color how a person approaches their, their death. Um, can you think of any situation which, you know, you did see someone who was dying well from a perspective of faith and, and a little bit about what that might look like? I think um, so often we forget that God's grace is off, most often sort of uh, communicated through people and through mm. community. And so I think the Christian who is able to um, have that experience at the end of life, that, that is uh, really critical. And so um, uh, in a church sort of organization context, you know, when, when you're able to ensure that you know, people are able to visit and, mm -hmm. and uh, provide support and interact. Um, you know, when someone is sick, I think that that's really a, an important, obviously a time-honored tradition in most Christian circles that, right, you right. know, there would be visits, but I would just uh, further encourage that, that sort of practice as, as it uh, pertains to, to palliative care context. Right. We often think of the person who's dying as being, you know, from the outside is sort of isolated and needing to get right with God, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, that kind of sense. And, 
um, which puts a lot of pressure on the dying process rather than the sort of receptivity that you've described or receiving a sense of peace from God's, you know, as, as beloved, um, being surrounded by people who, who are a part of this, um, not only a part of the person maybe living well toward death, but, um, are a part of who they are as, as someone who belongs to God. And so seeing it in that kind of more holistic way, I think that's, yeah, that's helpful. Um, the, maybe the, the obvious question sometimes, um, especially I think for those who are not as engaged with people who are, who are dying on an everyday basis is, um, from the outside, we might tend to think, well, it, it can be such a, a dark, you know, godless, <laughs> uh, you know, experience, or, or, or at least we might think that there are going to be lots of times when people have a sort of, um, sense of God's absence because dying is, is so difficult. Um, how do you reflect on that sort of the absence of God, the possibility of God's absence in, in this process of dying, which is so mysterious to us and difficult in in many ways. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So I, I did my master's degree in theological studies at Tyndale and, and a lot of, uh, my thought for, for different essay assignments was surrounding palliative care. I was already practicing at that time. And mm-hmm. my final integrative uh, essay was on Christ's love for the dying. Mm. Um, and that centered around the early church and how they um, took care of plague victims in the Roman Empire, mm. uh, despite being persecuted right before one of the plagues that, that hit the empire. Um, and they pointed a lot to Matthew 25 and the idea that taking care of uh, someone who is sick is akin to taking care of Jesus himself. And so that, uh, was really critical for them and they felt was a central, uh, idea. Um, and I think it, it connects to the cross, the idea that Jesus, um, uh, suffered uh, and can understand our suffering, uh, that he experienced forsakenness uh, and so can, ex- can, can be present and, and, and share our experience of times when the world feels godless. Mm. Um, and I think that um, all, all the more God is probably, you know, feel, can feel, or probably, you know, probably, I guess you could say feels more present mm. in a place like, uh, the, uh, final months of life than when we're distracting ourselves from, uh, real life with our phones or mm. social media. And so, so I think, um, you know, Jesus, um, experienced a type of suffering that, you know, in some theological sort of ways of thinking, uh, it was the absolute depths of what it can be to suffer as a human and therefore can understand mm. and be ever the more present when we are suffering. Um, I think it speaks to, again, that idea of a good death and the authenticity that, that, it should, you know, ideally would be there in, in the sense of you don't have to pretend to be happy or be mm. uh, full of faith when you're in severe pain. Mm. Uh, and that's okay. 
you know, the, 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 this idea that, you know, uh, a Christian who is dying would, would sort of be so serene and not experience anything. I, I don't think that's a Christian concept per se. Mm. I think that's, um, <clears throat> that's a different uh, origin and, and that uh, for a Christian, it's about being honest in our suffering. Mm. It's about being honest when we feel forsaken, about being honest when we feel that God is not near. Um, mm. And just knowing that God is near, even if we don't feel it, mm. uh, because he really does understand and has experienced uh, the level of suffering that we're going through. Mm. Um, but it's not by pretending that we're not suffering, I think, right. that, that we uh, experience his love. Mm. It reminds me, just as you're saying, that reminds me of a, a common thing that that pastors say, um, in terms of funerals versus weddings, what, do, what would you prefer to do? And many, many pastors will say, I'd much rather be a participant in a funeral than in a wedding service. I mean, they're both, both powerful and important in their own way, of course, but there is, you use that word authentic. There's something authentic often about what's happening at a funeral. There's uh, of course there's pretending there's covering over there's, you know, death doesn't always bring out the best in us, obviously, but there's something real about uh, funerals and the way that sometimes isn't true at weddings. Um, and so I think that's why pastors say that, uh, because there, there is that sort of authenticity and that um, reaching toward God that can be real uh, in those, those contexts. Um, uh, we, we aren't going to dig into uh, MAID, um, medical aid in dying. Um, obviously, that remains uh, a difficult um, and challenging uh, reality um, in terms of Christian faith and how we talk about it and argue about it um, and really important questions to explore. But I thought just uh, a couple of things we could touch on. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about how has has made, has it put any pressure on you? How has it worked for you vocationally in terms of the, the care, the palliative care that you provide? I, I feel fortunate that, um, that the Quebec government's approach to this, uh, to MAID has been respectful of uh, conscience rights, uh, of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, uh, yeah. everyone involved. Um, so that I don't, I am not asked to make a referral. I'm not asked to uh, participate. I uh, simply have to inform my healthcare sector that there is a patient requesting uh, a treatment that I um, am not comfortable offering. Uh, and then it's up to the sector to organize uh, the offer of MAID to the patient. And I get to continue to be their doctor day to day and provide the care that I was providing uh, without being sort of sucked into the MAID process, which would make me uncomfortable. Mm. Um, so the fact that I can continue to provide the care that I'm providing to do palliative care um, and that the government has allowed a distinction between palliative care and MAID, mm. I think uh, has been very helpful. 
um, the one of the first jurisdictions to legalize euthanasia was the Northern Territory in Australia. And uh, when they did it, they actually had palliative care doctors uh, very much involved in the process. And it led to um, many palliative care doctors leaving the area because they uh, didn't feel comfortable and, and felt that it was affecting their work in negative ways. So I think we've learned lessons from the past and, and not made those mistakes. So Quebec has seen palliative care and made as distinct um, entities uh, to the point that although in a palliative care unit in a public institution like ours, we offer MAID uh, in a private hospice or maison de soins palliatifs, as we call it in Quebec, mm. Uh, they are not obligated to offer MAID. Uh, it is up to that private institution, um, especially given that they, they only get very little uh, uh, government support, about right. uh, 30% government uh, support. So it's a 70% private institution, these Maison de Soins And so they're allowed to make their decision as a, as a private entity. Uh, and I think that's really important to protect the the feel of a hospice hmm. um, that, uh, you know, should be providing uh, care in a consistent, congruent manner, uh, patient to patient, bed to bed, uh, so that uh, people can sort of feel comforted and in a community of people with, with the same goals of living with a terminal illness until death, and there's not that confusion of, oh, my, my neighbor is getting made and maybe I should get it then. And, you know, I think it can create a lot of uh, emotional turmoil that is unnecessary. Mm. Um, at our hospital, we, we are able to use a separate private room for uh, the discussions and the process of made so that we try to avoid the, those uh, those mixing of, of areas of medicine. Right. And I think that's really critical, again, for me and, and my ability to continue to practice in palliative care. Hmm. That's not to say there haven't been cases that have been harder and, and hmm. that have sort of really confronted me with, uh, with distress. But uh, I think overall, uh, it's been a safe place uh, for hmm. me to continue to practice. Yeah, I know of uh, my father-in-law is retired as a as a family doctor in Ontario, and I know that in Ontario it was very different. So that there is a requirement for a referral, um, and so mm -hmm. it's interesting to me that Quebec has taken that distinct approach where there is not that same requirement. Uh, where where doctors, given the the history of of medicine and the way it's practiced, a referral is kind of your participation in something in in something that you may have an objection to for religious or for other reasons so um, mm -hmm. it's interesting to hear about that distinction between ontario and quebec um, and sometimes we might think that quebec uh, would be less inclined to accommodate those kinds of i mean that might be my instinct to think that here in the context of quebec uh, mm. uh, the province might be less inclined to respect those uh, sort of religious freedoms and religious conscience rights. And yet here, here you're, you're describing this process where they really are respected and it's just, yeah, it's good to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. I, I could even mention, interestingly, just on the topic in BC, there's a hospice that opted out of offering made 
for non-religious reasons, hmm. um, just because that's what their board decided. Um, and if I understand the story correctly from the news, uh, they were told that you can only opt out for religious reasons. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> which, which is so odd. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but that, so, yeah, there's a number of provinces that have been a bit less sort of uh, comfortable hmm. giving uh, freedom to uh, uh, healthcare providers to, to make choices hmm. on this topic. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> in a way, they're, in, if that is the case, then they're, they're, refusing to see them as kind of two distinct areas of medicine in the way that you've described them, um, that and if they are two different kinds of practices of medicine, then there inevitably will be people who may not be people of faith who provide palliative care, who see it as having integ integrity as a practice and as a vocation, which is different from this other thing. And even mm -hmm. if they don't object to that other thing or possibility of may, they um, they still see the integrity of palliative care, I guess. Um, and so you would think that in that context, we'd be able to respect that, right? Seeing these as distinct areas of medicine, um, that may, that may be about bureaucracy and administration and, uh, all kinds of <laughs> questions that we won't go there, but, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. that's really interesting to hear you reflecting on that. Um, a last question, um, is, uh, a question of, um, your own faith through all of this. You've been uh, practicing palliative care for, for 12 years now. Uh, it was kind of a journey leading up to um, entering into this particular area of practice uh, professionally. And I'm wondering over those 12 years, how has your own faith been shaped or changed by the work that you do in palliative care? Yeah, I think um, I touched on it a little bit earlier but the the fact that my patients um often <clears throat> and especially as they're in the last days of life uh, aren't able to do a lot mm. it's uh allowed me to sort of see that uh, faith cannot be primarily about the things we do and accomplish and the activities that that we participate in as children of God, we 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 don't need to do anything to um, have that status. It's something that He's offering us freely. It's it's part of the grace of forgiveness and mm. and of uh, Jesus's uh, death and resurrection. Uh, that it's a free gift, and it doesn't uh, require. Um, any specific sort of actions and so it's allowed me to uh, appreciate a bit when Paul talks about uh, essentials and non-essentials of our faith mm -hmm. the essentials are are are, um, are are in the in the category of faith and belief and experience of God's love and peace. And it doesn't mean the non-essentials are not important mm. uh, or that we should completely avoid the non-essentials uh, in a sort of Gnostic approach where everything mm. is spiritual. Uh, but it's that 
the actions um, should flow th- from our faith and from the um, sort of gifts of the spirit rather than from guilt or obligation or uh, a sense that this is what it means to be a Christian. Mm. Uh, Because otherwise my patients would be disqualified from Mm. being Christians in their state. And I just don't believe that that's possible. And so uh, that, that has helped my faith and, and through the pandemic uh, not feeling that uh, I absolutely had to uh, interact with church in the same way that I had previously. We opted to experience church through a small group uh, through the pandemic, and that was very much life-giving and, and uh, uh, helpful. And, and so that it's, give, it's allowed me to see that aspect of our faith and, and our uh, or, you know, uh, Jesus's teachings and, and his life and the meaning that he's offering us. Um, and, you know, I, I think it also connects to the idea of all of us being uh, parts of the body of Christ. And, mm. and you know, the, there are the people who are going to get things done and who are going to uh, mobilize certain things that are also excellent and really important. Um, and it's okay if I, you know, um, participate in the body of Christ in a different way. Mm. If I'm a different body part with different um, interactions uh, and, and that, that rather than feeling guilt, which I would have once experienced, I think my practice, my work has, has taught me that, um, that, that God is not looking down on me um, in, in the way that I think I used to, to think. Yeah. That's, I think, particularly powerful in the pandemic context where, you know, many of us aren't able to do the same things that we were able to do. Um, uh, we find it hard to be motivated. We hard, find it hard to keep uh, at the same pace of work and that can translate into, yeah, guilt, duty, um, a sense that we're not measuring up, um, and yeah, just what I hear you saying is, um, from your patients and that interaction, seeing that, that it's, it's above all a gift, right. That, that, that God loves us. Um, yeah, that we are welcomed <laughs> in a simple, simple sense. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I appreciate that, uh, so much. And I appreciate this whole conversation, Thank you so much for taking the time to, to reflect on these questions with me and uh, just really grateful for that. And I pray that you will, yeah, continue to discover new things uh, about yourself and about uh, your vocation and about how God is, is at work in your, in your practice as a palliative care doctor. So thank you and uh, just wishing you all the best. Thank you so much. Uh, it's always nice to chat with you, Roland. Thanks, Roger.